in, uh, called My Near-Death Experiment. And what we've been talking about is, um, what would you do differently? What would you change about your life? How would you refocus your life if you knew how much time you had left? If, if you really knew how much time you had left, what would you do differently? What would you want your life to look like? What would you change about how you spend your time and, and how, how you live your life? And one of the pieces of that that we've talked about is that most life change happens one of two ways. It happens through either inspiration or desperation. And, and you know, it's the, the desperation is that time that we've, you know, we dig ourselves in a hole that's so deep that we sort of make a deal with God. God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll never do it again. Uh, or uh, we just find ourselves into what we kind of feel like is a hopeless situation or it's such a wake-up call uh, that, that it really changes how we think and changes everything. And, and then the other side is that we're so inspired by something that God just speaks to us through his word or through other people or through worship or something. And, and it's through that inspiration, it's, it's through God's Spirit that, that we realize, you know what, I want to make some changes in my life. I want to do these, I want to live my life differently. I want to refocus my life. And, and wouldn't it be great if we could do more change out of inspiration and a little less out of desperation in our lives? And, and that's what we've been trying to talk about. How do we focus our lives in such a way that we, uh, that we can make those changes, uh, that we can really see uh, God's hand in our lives, God's working in our lives, and, and without the desperate times in our lives, without the, the huge holes that we find ourselves in. And we've talked about our macro vision. Our macro vision comes out of Mark 12, uh, um, uh, 29 to 31, uh, and it just, it's basically, it basically says this, that, that uh, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That a religious leader came to Jesus one day and he said, uh, uh, and he said what's the greatest commandment? What's the thing, if, you, if you obey, you're gonna obey one thing, you'll stick with this, and, and Jesus said it's easy, and he took two, and, and he combined them, uh, he took two verses out of the Old Testament, combined them into one idea, and he said here's, here it is, here's the great commandment. If you follow this, you'll cover everything. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's our macro mission. And then we've talked about the idea that underneath that we all have a micro mission. We all have something that God has gifted us and equipped us to do. And, and how do we find out what that micro mission is and how do we give ourselves uh, to that? And so we're gonna follow that up this morning with another idea. The, the title of this is eulogy. Y-O-U-L-O-G-Y, and, and here's the idea that I want you to think about this morning. Uh, what would you like said about you at your memorial service? Or what would you like written about you in your eulogy? Uh, Stephen Covey in his writings used to talk about begin with the end in mind. So, so let's just say, here's, here's what I, I'm gonna write my eulogy, here's what I want it to be like, and now what do I build into my life? What do I start doing now so that those things are true about me when we come to that point in our lives? And, and so that's the idea that we're gonna talk about this morning. What are the things that I do in my life right now uh, so that when I get to the end of my life, I'm the person that I really want to be, I'm the person I really feel God's called me to be, and so we're gonna talk about our eulogy. And we've got the students in here today, and um, so you're going to stick with us. And here's what I want you to think about, because some, everybody's in school now, yay for you, and uh, you get to decide 
what people are going to remember about you. If you're a freshman this year, you can make a decision this morning and say, what do I want people to remember about me when I'm finished with high school? Uh, If you're a senior, you can still do that. What do I want people to remember when I come back to my reunion 10 years down the road? What is it that people are going to remember about me? What do I want to remember? And you can start now building those things into your life. You can start now putting in the ingredients so that when you come to the end, people remember the things about you that are really valuable, that really matter, uh, that are really important. And you can do that. You have the privilege. It's a gift to be able to do that now. How do you want to be remembered? What do you want them to think about? Uh, Caleb, uh, our oldest son Caleb, wrote the book and the workbook and everything, my near-death experiment that we're using in this series. And he will share a few family stories in the course of this book. And I always feel obligated. I'll call him on the phone when I read or hear one and say, Caleb, you want to know how that really happened? Uh, And... So there's one story that he shares uh, in the book and in his video that's with the workbook that's uh, about a a young woman uh, when our boys were, uh, actually Josh, our oldest, our middle son. We have Caleb uh, and then Joshua and Aaron. And um, Josh, our middle son, when he was a senior in high school, he had a free period. He was a really good student and uh, he was a good kid. He was captain of the football team. He did all this stuff, but he was a, he had a free period, and, and uh, here's where Caleb didn't get it quite right. Um, in the book, he says that Josh decided to do something significant with his free hour. Actually, his mother, Jenna, decided he was going to do something significant with that free hour. That's how that really happened. And um, Josh ended up volunteering in special ed, and he absolutely fell in love with these kids uh, in the special ed program. And he, in fact, got permission from his coaches to give one of the boys uh, his practice jersey. You see this kid being wheeled around campus wearing this uh, number 15 practice jersey. Uh, he uh, had one young woman, one, young, one girl, Adriana, who he told us that she, of all of the kids in this special ed class, she seemed to be the one who was most in touch with what she was missing, what she couldn't do. Um, what she was missing out on, and, and it really caught his heart, and so he, he really adopted her, and, and uh, in fact, there were times he, we'd take her to church, we'd pick her up, take her to church, and, and she'd have dinner at our house, and I remember one time uh, she was having dinner at our house, and we must have had hamburgers and french fries or something, because we had french fries and <clears throat> ketchup on the plate, and she had muscular dystrophy, didn't have good use of her arms, and she was trying to eat those french fries with ketchup and getting it all over her, and I was sort of trying to politely look down and eat, but at one point I look up and I, I see Josh and he's been hitting his face with french fries and ketchup so that they looked alike. And, uh, and she looked at him and just laughed and thought that was the greatest thing ever. Well, Josh went away to college and um, Adriana was still at Claremont High School in California and the end of Josh's freshman year, he got a letter and Adriana had asked somebody to write a letter for her, and in that letter, she asked Josh if he would take her to the prom. And so he called us and said, you know, what do you think? And, and Caleb's cute in his book. He says, you know, he and Josh and Aaron weren't the kind of guys that go back to take the high school girl to the prom, you know, so that wasn't sort of normal activity for them. And, and we said, if you're out of school, let's, let's go for it. And so he, he came home uh, a few days early, and and borrowed a tuxedo from one of his buddy's dads and uh, took Adriana to the prom. He, uh, 
I'll, I'll never forget, I was talking to another dad who was taking money at the door that night and letting kids in, and he's uh, real involved in the local LDS ward, this dad, and he told me um, he said he would never forget that moment that when Josh wheeled her up, he said, I couldn't take Josh's money. I just cried. I just sat there and cried. I couldn't do anything. And all the parents, they, they said, no, no, you just go on in. We're not, you're not paying for this. You go on into the prom. And so they, Josh wheeled her into the prom. And when all the kids saw her, uh, there was just this moment of grace uh, where the rest of the evening, boys took turns wheeling her around the dance floor. Um, she had on this pretty dress, and she was a princess that night and uh, had the best time of her life because um, Josh was taking her to the prom. And um, it was remarkable. One of the most powerful things about that is that the next year, if you went to Claremont High School campus, you would see on Fridays these football players with their jerseys wheeling kids around the campus that all these other kids decided to volunteer in special ed because of the impression that Josh left them. The picture that he left them about grace and about caring and about relationships. And it just doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, we have the opportunity to write how we're gonna be remembered. We have the opportunity to influence how we're gonna be remembered. And this morning we're gonna look at two eulogies out of the Bible, two of my favorites. The, the first one, Oh, let me just say one other thing. I saw it in my notes. So here's another part of being remembered. Guys, just take, listen to this for a second. Okay, you might want to write this down. It's a little tricky. But I used to tell the boys, do you want to be the kind of guy that knows how to make girls like you, or do you want to be the kind of guy that girls like? You get to make that choice. Do you want to be the kind of guy that knows how to make girls like you, or do you just simply want to be the kind of guy that girls like? And you get to choose that. You get to choose how you're remembered. You, you get to live your life out that way. And I, I think if you're a, an adult and you're in a job that you don't like or you don't feel appreciated, you get to choose still how you're remembered in that job. You get to choose how you're remembered in that, in that role. All right, now, Deuteronomy 34. We get to read the eulogy of Moses. Listen to this, and starting in verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. That's a pretty awesome eulogy, isn't it? I mean, those are powerful things. Listen to that. I mean, there's never, there's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Nobody like him. Uh, but, but if you read the whole text, of, you read the whole context of, of Moses' life, you, you realize that at the very beginning when he saw the burning bush, he tried to talk God out of it. He said, God, not me. I'm not, I'm not the guy. I don't speak well. Uh, I'm gonna, if, I, if I go back to Egypt, I'm just going to get killed. Uh, you remember what I did back there, you know? And, and, I, I'm not the, and, and God had to chastise him. God had to say, Moses, you're the one that I've chosen and send him. And, and then later on, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he comes back 
back with the Ten Commandments and, and they've made a golden calf and he gets so angry, he throws them on the ground and breaks them and, and he ends up having to go back again. And then there's a final time that, that God had provided water out of the rock for the Israelites and, and God was gonna provide again, but Moses decided to take it into his own hands and he struck limestone and water came out and God said, because of your pride and because you didn't wait for me, because of that, you're not gonna go into the promised land. So here's the guy that led the children of Israel out of Egypt. He led them for 40 years. He did all of these things. He did all the things that they say in his eulogy. But in the end, he didn't even get to go to the promised land. But how do we remember him? We remember him as the greatest prophet. We remember him as a man that God used. We remember him as a man that God did so many things. All the great deeds that he did uh, in the name of the Lord. All that was accomplished in his life. And isn't it interesting because Moses didn't get stuck in his failures. And Moses didn't get labeled so deeply in his failures that he never got out of it. But in spite of his failures, in spite of all of those things, uh, God still used him. And his name was still remembered. And his eulogy is powerful. And here's part of the message this morning is that so often we get stuck in our failures and we get stuck in our past. We get stuck in those things that we've done and we don't think we're ever going to get out of and they kind of define our lives. But that's not who we are because what God does in our lives is when we find Christ, he rewrites those things for us. It's part of his grace. It's part of his forgiveness. And we can't afford to get stuck. In Caleb's book, he talks about it as a shadow of life? What are those things uh, in our lives that, that we don't want anybody else to know about? I, I was reading about a, a, a doctor, a psychologist, actually a sociologist, Renee, um, uh, Brene Brown, Dr. Brene Brown, and she spent 10 years doing a research and study on people and what people really needed, what people really needed for a good life. And it, what's really interesting thing is that in the, this 10-year study, she came to the conclusion that what people really need is connection. She said connection is why we're here. And in the idea of connection, she means authentic, real relationships. That the thing that's lacking most in people is authentic, real relationships, real friendship, real love, uh, real acceptance, real kind of, you know, having somebody that, that's com that committed to you. And she went on to say that the greatest deterrent to those kind of relationships, to that kind of connection, is shame. Isn't it interesting? She said it was so profound for her that she had to go into therapy in the middle of this research study, in the middle of this decade-long research study, she had to go into therapy because it was so profound. It pointed out in her life how, how little she was connected. She said, when I would talk to people about love, they would tell me about broken hearts. When I talked to people about being connected, they would talk to me about the disconnection in their lives and the, the loneliness and the isolation that they've experienced and that the, that the conclusion was that what we really need to experience is love, a genuine love, but we don't know how. And she said the biggest deterrent to real connection, to real relationship was shame. That, and, and this idea of shame, she said, was a fear of not being connected. The fear of disconnection. And it comes from the ideas, there's something in my life, there's something about me that if people really knew they wouldn't like me. If people really knew, they would reject me. And it's that fear 
of those hidden things in our lives. It's that fear, that shame in our lives that caused people to stay away, to keep others at arm length, our arm's length, not to be uh, connected. And so what she said is that, in, that in, rather than, than experience that, and what she called it, she called it to, to become vulnerable. And I hate that word. I gotta be honest with you. Vulnerable. To me, vulnerable is like, it's been used so much. Well, you need to be more vulnerable or, you know, you need to be more transparent and, and I try to figure out what that means and, and does that mean I just tell people everything that's wrong with me and all my troubles and I kind of throw up on everybody and then they kind of throw it back on me and then we pretend that that's good and, and then I just feel like they're just going to talk about it to other, everybody else and then we're going to call that vulnerability and what is, you know, I just don't like the whole idea. And yet that's what we need. And, and here's, what she was getting at. In fact, when she went into therapy, she said she had a breakdown, but her therapist called it a spiritual awakening. I don't think she's a believer, but she had an awakening of something that was on the inside of her that needed to get fixed. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says in John 8, 12. Let's see if we have it up here. John 8, 12, Jesus said, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm the light of the world. That Jesus said, if you want to know, if you want to get rid of those shadows in your life, if you want to get rid of all those places, let me shine my light in your life. You see, the opposite side is that we don't, we're not willing to face those places in our lives. Dr. Brown found that people with a strong sense of love and belonging all shared the same attribute of transparency, of vulnerability, or what I think the Bible calls humility. So she said, we either face our shame or we numb ourselves. And I would say we either face our shame with truth and humility or we numb ourselves. That she said that we numb ourselves to vulnerability we say, I don't want to feel shame or fear or failure or isolation, and we think that we can selectively numb those feelings. We think we can selectively numb the feelings of shame, of fear, of isolation, but she says what happens is that when you try to numb those feelings, you numb all the feelings. You numb the feelings of joy, and you numb the, uh, the feelings of gratefulness, and, you, and gratitude, happiness, and a spiral begins in your life. And she says, what we have as a result of that, what we have as a result of not dealing with our shame and our disconnectedness is that we are the most in debt, the most obese, the most addicted, the most medicated adult generation in the history of the United States. All to numb what's going on on the inside, all to numb that shame. And what we're called to is authenticity. Call it vulnerability, call it transparency, but it's really authenticity. Caleb says in his book, authenticity is to know yourself and to live honestly before others. And I think this begins, I believe this begins when we understand how God sees us. You see, light equals truth. When the light of Christ shines in our hearts, he shows us the truth about who we are. And we don't always like to see it, but then when we see it for what it is, it challenges us in terms of how we see God. 
uh, some of us see God as, as the, the great judge who's gonna, who's gonna throttle us, who wants to punish us, who's waiting for us to do something wrong, who looks for those things in our lives so that he can get back at us, so he can punish us, and there's always that fear of punishment going on. But you know, in John three sixteen, we all know that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that who should ever um, believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In the next verse he said, for I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And you see the Christ who came and died on a cross for us, the Christ who rose again, didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. He, did, he didn't come to point out those things in our lives so that, he could, uh, so that he could punish us with them. He came to point out those things in our lives so that we would know the truth and we could be healed from those things in our lives. And so light equals truth. We so often want to hide from the truth and we, we don't want to know, we don't want to deal with our sin, we don't want to deal with our issues, or we have a blind spot and we simply don't see what's going on in our lives. So the question is, are we hiding from the truth? Are we hiding from the light that God wants to shine into our hearts, that Christ wants to shine into our hearts? And so here's what we need. We need light, the light of Christ, plus the humility to see what is really in there, to allow Christ to really show us to allow Christ to begin to heal us of, of what's in our lives. So it brings us to the second eulogy that I want to look at this morning, and, and that's out of Philippians, the second chapter, verses 5 through 11. And if you, you think about this, you might be thinking, you know what, I think Larry's talked about that before. You're right. I think I've talked about that a lot, because here's, here's 2 Corinthians 5, or 2, verses 5 through 11, is the most concise, um, I think the best picture of who Jesus is, and the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have in the scripture. And it's one of my life passages. I go back to it all the time because it's how I want to live. It's how I would like to be remembered at the end of my life. And so here we have Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And it begins this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here's what he's saying. Have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. He's saying, I want you to think the way Jesus thinks. I want you to look at your life the way Jesus looks at your life. I want you to look at the kingdom of God the way Jesus looks at the kingdom of God. I want you to look at how you're going to finish your life the way Jesus finished his life. I want you to think like him. I want you to have his mind. And here is what that looked like. He says that though he was in the very form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So here's what that looks like. Jesus is the very form of God. The, the two Greek words there are morphe theo. And, it, and it, so it means that Jesus isn't just the form that looks like God, but Jesus is the essence of God. He is God. He is part of the Trinity. He is part of the Godhead. He was there at creation. If you read the creation act in Genesis, the first chapter, what you see and in, in, in following you, what you see is that the word for God that's used in the Old Testament is a plural word. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus was. He was there from the beginning. He was part of creation. He spoke the earth into existence. He spoke us into existence. That's Jesus. And he did not count equality with God. He did 
did not count that greatness uh, something to be grasped. There's another picture that we have of who Jesus is. It comes that I love. It comes from Isaiah, the sixth chapter. Isaiah was the great prophet of his day. His uh, King Uzziah has just passed away. A lot of scholars think that King Uzziah might have even been Isaiah's cousin. Isaiah was his key guy. He was one of his confidants. He was a leader in the nation. Isaiah finds that Uzziah's died. He's heartbroken. He's mourning. He goes into the temple, and when he gets into the temple, he sees God. He sees what we call a theophany. He sees who God is, and what we have is a picture of Jesus. We have Jesus in the temple, and it says that the train of his robe circled the whole temple, that he filled the temple with his glory and his presence, and there were angels on either side of Jesus, and they're singing constantly. They're in worship constantly, holy, holy, holy. That's what they did 24 hours a day, seven days a week for all eternity. They worshiped him and they sang holy, holy, holy. And that's Jesus. And here's what it says, that Jesus didn't count that as so great. He didn't count that magnificence. He didn't count that power. He didn't count that position as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself of that. He gave that up. Why did he give that up? For us, because he loved us. He loved us more than that greatness. He was willing to sacrifice that, to give that up for us. And when I think about that, when I I sort of get in touch with the greatness of the Lord and realize that he emptied himself, he gave that up for my sake, I am so embarrassed with the stupid things that I grasp and try to hang on to. I'm so embarrassed by the, the trivial things in my life that I think are so important that I have to hold on to. The, the privileges that I have in my life, the standing that I have in my life, the, the things that I have in my life that I think I need to hold on to, grasp. And I realize that Jesus the Christ gave up all of that majesty and glory and emptied himself of that for my sake. It's, a, it's amazing, it's remarkable, but he emptied himself, it says, by taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men. That's awesome. You know what happens when God empties himself? He starts to look like us. It tells you a little bit about who we are, right? Where we rate. He was born in the likeness of men and being found in, in human form. And that's a different word for form. That's frame and body. He humbled himself uh, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how Paul remembered it. That's what Jesus looked like. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you know what, here's what that means, that not only did the God of the universe not consider equality with the Father to something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. But then he allowed himself to be humiliated for our sake. You see, the prayer isn't, Lord, make me more humble. It'd be a good thing to be more humble. It's always, Lord, humiliate me so I might be humble. It changes the whole deal, doesn't it? And he humbled himself. He was humiliated for our sake. In front of the world, for our sake, because he loved us. He was willing to be humiliated. He was obedient to the point of death. And then Paul throws in that caveat, even death on the cross, because the cross was the most humiliating, the most frightening, the most painful, the most torturous way that the Romans ever devised of killing someone. And they had borrowed it from the Persians, and then they just perfected it. But that's what they do. They would take people when they would conquer a place. In fact, in Rome, they would, they would line up people on crosses outside the gates of Rome as a sign as people would come into to the city that if you get out of line, if you disobey the Romans, this is what's gonna happen to you. 
and Jesus was willing to endure that for our sake. He didn't count his greatness, his majesty, his place in heaven so valuable that he wouldn't empty himself of that so that we might have life, so that we might have an opportunity to know him. Here's what happens in verse nine. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, that's true greatness. Jesus didn't come back after the resurrection and say, now I'm gonna take my greatness back. Now I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna remind you how great I am. Jesus didn't do that, but the Father lifted him up. The Father pl- placed him at the highest place. Uh, that gave his name, the name that's above every name in the universe, every name in history, that there is no place higher, there's no place better that you can be, uh, that Jesus is at the highest place, but he didn't claim that, he didn't do it, he didn't go for it, he didn't grasp it for himself, but God elevated him because of who he was, that how he is remembered is at the highest place, and it's uh, it's not because he was the hero, it's because he was willing to give himself, empty himself, sacrifice himself for our sake and therefore God exalted him and you know greatness really should be measured not in so much what we do but how we're remembered it's what other people see in our lives it's what God sees in our lives and that's that's what Jesus was God highly exalted him and and so rather than living in shame here's what the life of a believer should look like if you, if, you, if you look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says if anyone is what? In Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Romans 8, 1 talks about there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So one of the things that we know is that when Christ comes to live in our lives, he comes in us, he lives in us. So let me ask you this question. It's not really a hard one. If Christ has been exalted to the highest place, then where are we? If I'm in Christ, then what else do I have to prove? If, if Christ is in me, then can I get any higher than who I am in Jesus, than who I am when I belong to him, that where he has placed me because I belong to him? Is there any higher place that you can possibly get when Christ is in you? There isn't. And I don't have anything to prove. You don't have anything to prove because of who Jesus is. It's because of his greatness. And that's true greatness. And it came out of his humility, his courage, transparency, his suffering. So before we see ourselves clearly, though, sometimes we need to see God more clearly. We need to be reminded of who he is. And we need to see how God sees us. We need to be reminded how God sees us. So one of my favorite verses is in Zephaniah 3.17. It says this, that the Lord your God is in your midst and a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's just the Bible, you guys. (laughs) Okay, think about this, all right? This is another one that we need to go back to from time to time. The Lord your God is in your midst. Okay, I'm good with that. He's a mighty one who will save. Got it. He will rejoice over you with gladness. That's how he thinks about you. He will quiet you in those times of anxiousness and fear. He will quiet you with his love. (laughs) And then he exults over you 
with loud singing. The God of the universe exults over you with loud singing. He's not trying to keep it quiet so it's not embarrassing. He's not trying to just sort of do it on the side. How often do you think about God singing over you? How often do you think about the fact that God loves you so much, he thinks so much about you that when you come to mind, he breaks into song for you? That's the truth. That's how valuable you are. That's how God sees you. He loves you. He created you. You belong to him. You're valuable to him. (laughs) And he sings loudly over you. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14 say this, for you, were formed, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. God loves us. He made us. And we want to live authentic lives. Authenticity, to know yourself and to live honestly before others. And in order to do that, we need to let the light of Christ shine into our lives to, to, to get rid of those shadows, to change us from the inside out. And we need to have the humility and the courage to look at those things and allow the Lord to forgive us, to free us, to change us from those things that are in our lives, to heal us from those things that are in our lives. Let the light of Christ's truth shine in our hearts and then embrace the humility that comes from seeing Jesus in our lives. Um, (laughs) There's one other story that Caleb shares in this part of the book, and so let me correct it for you, uh, those of you who are gonna read it. But uh, he talks about, years ago when I worked for Young Life, um, I used to go visit different Young Life clubs and see how they were doing, and, and I would take one of the boys with me whenever I could, so one time Caleb, remembers he being about 10, I actually don't remember that he went with me to this Young Life Club, and, and um, we go in there, and, and kids start showing up, and uh, about kids get in, and all of a sudden, this whole group of kids, and it was back in the days that goth had gotten really popular, so all these kids show up with, you know, just total black on, pale faces, things poking, piercing, things that I kept thinking, I'm not let my kid out of the house with that, you know, you know famous last words. Um, but they all came in in a group, and, it, and if you didn't know them, it's a little intimidating because they looked kind of angry about things, you know, life in general. And, and so this whole group of kids were mixed into this, this room, and, and this young woman, it's the end of the school year, and this young woman's going to give the talk, and uh, she gets up in front of these kids, and she looks out over this group of kids, and she says, you know, um, this is prom week, and uh, in my four years of high school, Nobody ever asked me to the prom. Just simple. And it, it, was like every, it was like everybody in the room stopped breathing. And they just stared at her. And I think every girl in the room just thought, oh, that's either my pain or I'm so afraid of that pain. And then she proceeded to talk about John the eighth chapter, the woman that was caught in adultery and how that woman experienced God's love and forgiveness, how she experienced Jesus' grace and compassion. And she explained how that had made the whole difference in her life, to experience Christ in that way. 
And then she was going to finish her, her talk by singing a song. So she got her guitar and uh, <laughs> uh, got her guitar and launched into this song to finish her talk. And she was not a good guitar player and maybe a worse singer. And she starts playing this guitar, sounding much more like a washboard than we're used to, just kind of scratching on this guitar and singing this song. And she starts sweating. She's so nervous. And so she's scraping this guitar, screeching with her voice. I mean, as the song goes on, her voice is getting higher and higher and higher. Uh, until the end, it was something like a screech. And she's sweating more and more through the whole song. I mean, to the point where before she's done, I am literally, we're all sitting on the floor, I'm literally on one knee thinking I may have to go jump up and run up to the front and stand between her and the kids and make this right somehow, say something that will change this because these kids are brutal. They're gonna just, it's gonna be horrible what happens next. And she's scratching and screeching and sweating and she gets to the end of this song and stops and I'm poised to run up to the front and before I could even think about it, the whole room just bursts into applause. Kids stand up. Um, kids are just yelling. They're applauding for her. Uh, it was remarkable. And, and I sat back and I realized that I had been so focused on her performance that I almost missed the miracle. That here was a, a young woman that uh, every week went to that high school campus and she loved those kids with their black t-shirts and, and uh, piercings and tattoos and bad attitudes and she loved other kids and she took them to lunch and she helped them with their homework and she became their friend and spent time with them and they loved her. And they didn't love her because of her music. They didn't love her because of her talent. They loved her because of who she was, because of her sacrifice, because of her love for Jesus, because she was a picture of Jesus to all of those kids. And I'll guarantee you that most of those kids don't remember a thing that she said that night, but they'll never forget her. And clearly, my 10-year-old son never forgot her. He shares the story in his book. And I've never forgotten her because I almost missed God's miracle. I almost missed what God can do when somebody is authentic, when somebody's real, when somebody loves people so much that they, even high school kids, no offense, can look past all of that and see somebody that cares so much about them. And how is she remembered today? Well, there are a lot of kids that are following Jesus because of her. There are a lot of kids that remember her love and her life. And that's the story that Jesus wants uh, to be written about us. The question is, will we let Christ shine in our life? Will we let him reveal those hidden places? Will we let him reveal those shadows in our lives so that he can heal us of those things to give us an authentic life, a life that connects with other people? a life that lives in relationship with him and others so that we can be the person that we always dreamed and certainly more importantly, we can be the person that the Lord wants us to be, wants us to have. There's something that we talk about as a staff all the time 
It's simply this. Um, ministry is uh, 80% invisible. I call it the 80-20 rule. Ministry is 80% invisible. Who you are in Christ is more important than anything you do. And this morning, I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you the fact that it's not what you do that matters so much as who you are. Who you are in Christ is more important than anything you do. Has Christ shined his light, his forgiveness, his love into your life? What's the story that we're going to leave behind? I don't want you to do anything just to leave a good story, but I want you to let Christ build your story through humility, through compassion, because of Jesus. And I don't know exactly what your story is going to look like, but I know that you will look like Jesus. And that's what really matters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you are, love us enough to shine your light in our hearts so we don't walk in darkness, that you will shine your light on those areas of our lives that we try so hard to keep hidden, that we try to numb ourselves to it, Lord, that you want to free us, forgive us, change us. And so, Lord, we receive that this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would shine a light on those things, and, Lord, that we would have the humility and the courage, Lord, to say yes to you. And, Lord, that our lives might take on an authenticity that we never believed, that we've never experienced before. And Lord, we will give you the praise for it and the glory and all the honor in Jesus' name. Amen.